Pastor Aaron, you want to hear this story. This story made me thankful for you. (laughs) I read a story this week about a preacher and a worship leader who who weren't getting along. (laughs) And so it started to come out during the service. Like the, the preacher one Sunday w- was preaching about how we should let God lead us wherever He wants. The worship leader closed with the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. <laughs> Preached about how we should gladly give all to God. The worship leader closed with Jesus paid it all. The preacher preached about how we should be careful with our tongues. And the worship leader closed with, I love to tell the story. Eventually, the preacher was getting frustrated, so he uh, talked about maybe resigning. The worship leader closed with, oh, why not tonight? (laughs) And finally, the next week, the preacher announced, I'm going to resign because Jesus led me to. And the worship leader closed with, what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) That story reminded me that that church leadership is important and leaders working together to serve Jesus and His body together are an important thing. You remember if you were with us last week, we, we started looking at God's plan for leadership as we looked at what godly elders look like in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This week we're going to start by looking at deacons and his heart for deacons in the church and then get to God's heart for the church. Because what we never want to happen is these, these things that God gives us to order his church to become like detached. They all connect to Jesus somehow and that's where we're going to land. But first, I want to talk about deacons. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we look at that first verse... Verse 8 says, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect. What's a deacon? It's interesting, there's a college team named the Demon Deacons. You ever come across them? You don't want those in your church. (laughs) But but what is a deacon? It, It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which basically means servant. A deacon is one who serves... God's people. John Stott said it this way, a deacon is someone who engages in a service of a social and practical kind. Thomas Constable called them spirit-controlled elder assistants. But if you're like me, you like a story, like you want to put some flesh on what does a good deacon look like? I don't know what kind of deacons you've encountered in your life. I, I did a service yesterday for a 97-year-old World War II vet who was a deacon at a Baptist church in California alongside Kevin Costner's dad, who is also a deacon. His daughter said she remembers Kevin Costner running around as a six-year-old boy at their church. Boy, that's interesting. But what is a deacon? Well, some people believe the ideas of the office of deacon started in Acts chapter 6. You remember there was a problem going on. Some of the widows in the early church weren't getting their share of the food that they needed. Some were and some weren't, so it was creating this tension. And the early church had to address this. 
So in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says, The twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility of caring for the widows over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. If you know the story, you know they chose seven, including Stephen, men of God. Verse 7 in chapter 6 tells me something interesting. After they did that, you know what it says? It says, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know what that tells me? In the church, when we get the right balance of God's word and teaching and prayer and practical service, it has a great impact in the world. When the early church got this blend right, the leaders focusing on the word and prayer and the church serving, it says even some of the priests, priests who were hostily opposed to Jesus during his lifetime began to be saved because they saw there's something special about this group called the church. They don't just preach and teach and pray. They serve also and together. That's a, a powerful witness. Deacons are important. If you were here last week and you compare the qualifications of deacons in this passage to qualifications for elder last week, you'll notice they're similar with one glaring difference. Remember it said the elders had to be apt to teach, able to teach? That's not mentioned in the deacons, which is part of what leads us to believe while their focus may not be only practical and physical, it is primarily that as they assist the elders. But let's look at the, the list real briefly. We're not going to stay long on it because a lot of it reflects last week. But it's worthy of unpacking. Verse 8 says, In the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect. This church, when, when you're looking for deacons, you want to be finding someone who has their mind focused on what's important. The Greek word can be translated serious, but like last week with the elders, we shared that doesn't mean they have to walk around like there's lemon juice in the communion wine. It, it doesn't mean that. They're, they're allowed to have fun in their lives. It just means as they do, they keep in mind what, what's really important. God's word and, and the mission we're on, God's people, etc. It says they must be sincere. The Greek word there literally means not double-tongued. This is someone who says something to one group over here. And it's especially easy with you're with someone, right, to flatter them. Say all these nice things, and as soon as they're gone, you run over here and say something different about that person to someone else, right? That's double-tongued. How many of you love it in your politicians? They stand in front of one group and say one thing and then they get in front of another and tell them exactly what they want to hear. Do you like that in politicians? No. So of course it has no place in the church. You need to be a, a person who says the same thing consistently wherever you're at. Not a chameleon who changes with your surroundings. That's important. They must be sincere. Part of that means you've got to care more about pleasing God than pleasing people. This Christmas with some of my Christmas money, I downloaded some really old Petra albums from the 70s. Really good stuff. And they got a song called God Pleaser. 
The chorus says, I want to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. You want to have a consistent tongue with whoever you're with. Focus your heart on pleasing God. He says, that's what we want in our deacons. Not indulging in much wine. This means a deacon knows when to stop with alcohol. N.T. Wright said it this way, usually that's one drink before you think you should. As a deacon, as an elder last week, you need to be careful. If you do partake in wine, do it responsibly and biblically, not getting drunk. goes on to say not pursuing dishonest gain. That's pretty self-explanatory. The next one's interesting. He says they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. They've got to have a grasp of the core of the faith. They've got to believe it. They've got to have their minds wrapped around the core of it. With a clear conscience. So they got to know it, but the clear conscience implies that they also live it. Right? It can't just be theoretical for the deacon. It's got to reflect in his life. Will Rogers said it this way. He said, live in such a way that you would not be ashamed to sell your parrot to the town gossip. I like that. What's that imply? It implies a consistency between what they show on Sunday and what happens at home. The next one's important. He says they must first be tested. And if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. At that memorial service yesterday, I learned that that World War II vet also enjoyed building planes. He would build T-18s. And before he sold them, he had to fly them for 45 hours before you're allowed to sell them. And I thought, man, somebody who does that really trusts themselves. <laughs> like, I mean, there must be a thoroughness and an integrity. Because I would never fly something I built. I mean, I'm just not that good with my hands. I don't trust my hands that well. But I thought about that process and how it makes sense. If I was going to buy one of those planes or you were, you definitely want to know that somebody tested it before you did, Right? You'd be thankful that this man put 45 hours in before you got up there. It's, it's easier to find that out before than after. And that's what Paul's saying with leaders in the church. Don't just quickly choose someone. Have time to observe their life and see if it lines up with the qualifications. That's important. The next verse is interesting. I don't know if you've studied it. But I want to break into it a little bit, and I want, you, I want to encourage you to study it for yourself if you'd like. In verse 11, I believe Paul may be talking about something called deaconesses. It's up for discussion. There's lots of different people that fall different places on this, but let me tell you what he says, and we'll start to look at it. He says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Okay, so Paul's been talking about elders, and then he's talking about male deacons, and then all of a sudden he he brings up women. So it brings up a question like, what women is he talking about? Because he talked to men and women in general already in chapter 2. Is he talking about the wives of the deacons? Or is he talking about women deaconesses in general? Is this an office that a woman could hold in the church? I personally believe so, after looking at it. You may feel differently, but I want to at least share why I do. One, you remember when we went through the book of Romans in chapter 16, verse 1, 
Paul said to the church at Rome, he said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria. He could have been saying to that church, Phoebe, who's bringing this letter from Centuria to Rome, is a deaconess here in Centuria. Now, to be honest, the word can also simply be translated servant of the church. So that's a possibility. But I lean towards her being a deaconess. I'll share a couple more reasons why. Verse 11 starts out in the same way. That's the same way verse 8 started out when he was talking about the male deacons. So it seems as though he's talking about a different group of people. In the same way, male deacons. In the same way, female deacons. Also, if he was only talking to deacon wives... Why is there no similar passage to elder wives earlier in the passage? You remember when we went through the elders, he didn't have this, this cut out for elders' wives. Plus, I don't believe there's anything about the office of deacon that would exclude a woman. I, I personally don't. So I tend to lean that way. I'd encourage you to study it for yourself. We believe, as we shared last week, that elder is a role reserved for men based on what it said about a husband managing his family well and what Titus says about a man who manages his family well. But I personally believe a woman can be a deaconess in the church. At our church, currently, we have four elders, and we need to pray and begin to seek God for this role of deacon. I see it in God's plan for the church, and we want to follow God's plan. So I'd encourage you to pray with us as we seek through that. But as he talks to the women in particular in this passage, he says you must not be malicious talkers. If they do take this role, they can't shred others with their slander and their gossip. Because someone in this role does encounter a lot of personal information in the church as they begin to love on the people in the church. Bertrand Russell said it this way. He said, no one gossips about other people's secret virtues. How rare is that you, that you hear someone like, hey, can you believe Susan? She is such an excellent and thorough worker. Like, I really think she should get a raise. Don't you? How often is that <laughs> what shared... Not as often as it should be. Often it's the other side. It's, it's malicious. And not just for women, for men as well. We need to guard against that in leadership in the church. But temperate, that means well-balanced and trustworthy in everything. That comes back to the idea, again, you're dealing with a lot of confidential info in the church as you love on people. You've got to be respectful with that. So now he goes back to deacons the male deacons in particular. Verse 12, he says, A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. We shared this with the elder, that this tells us something about how God views the church. Not primarily as some kind of cold organization or business, but as a family. As close to God's heart as he looks at his church. What's this look like? Well, N.T. Wright said this. He said, it shouldn't need saying that this does not mean a repressed, fearful family discipline which squashes everyone into the same narrow mold 
Families must be places of life and joy and fun as well as mutual support in good times and bad. But they must also be places where appropriate discipline and respect for one another are modeled. I like that balance. That's what it should look like at home. That's what it should look like in the church. Verse 13, he closes this section on deacons by saying, those who have served well, and maybe even looking back to the elders, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Standing literally means like a step. Like every Christmas when I put up the Christmas lights on the roof, a couple things always happen. One, I ask Carolyn to hold it because I hate heights. You know our roof's like not that tall. Please hold it at the bottom. And the boys always want to climb up there. They like climbing up those steps to get on the roof. They go up there and hang out with me as we put the lights on. You think about the steps on the ladder, that's somewhat of what Paul's getting here. What he's talking about is a step of respect. This lines up with what Jesus said, whoever wants to be the greatest of all must become the servant of all, right? And what he's saying is, hey deacons, as you serve the church, you gain respect with those you serve. And that tells all of us something in the church. God's plan towards respect in the church is not lording things over other people. It's serving other people. Think about the people in your life that you respect the most. And when you look closely, aren't they the people that care about you and serve you? That's what he's getting at with these deacons. He also says you'll have great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. I believe this is talking about like this boldness before God and others and this freedom of speech with God and others. How many, how many of you, when you start serving in a role, you feel overwhelmed? <laughs> and you feel nervous? And you're constantly aware of your feelings of inadequacy? But then over time, as you... As you start to, to serve and God is faithful and He walks with you and He shows you what happens, whatever your role, whether it's at work or at church, you start to build a confidence because you've seen Him do it in you in the past and you know He can do it in you in the future. That's what He's saying. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So I'd ask you all to specifically to pray with us this year as we pray through this idea of deacons in God's church. Let's seek the Lord's will on this and see where He takes us by the end of the year, okay? But I want to close by getting into the heart of this letter. Because it's easy to look at this list of elder qualifications and deacon qualifications and kind of feel like, what is this, a college class? Like it feels kind of cold and and distant and removed, but I want you to hear God's heart for why He cares about leaders in the church so much. Verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And I think about this, I'm like, man, thank God Paul didn't get there. Because God in His sovereignty, like if Paul had gotten there and, and seen Timothy earlier, maybe he wouldn't have written this and we wouldn't have this wonderful letter to look at for the church. But that's no accident. God knew He wanted this letter to be passed down for the generations for His church 
So he led Paul, who couldn't meet him, to go ahead and write this down. But this part brings up some key questions. He says, I'm writing so you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Now, I would like to ask you all the question. When you hear the word church, what do you think of? Do you primarily think of a building? Do you primarily think of one hour on a Sunday morning? I think what Paul would say is if, if that's all you think of, you, you need your mind expanded by God's view of the church. And he tells us three things about the church that we ought to hold on to when we think about church. The first one is it's God's household. That's why he says how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. It's the same word he used for family earlier. It's people. It's brothers and sisters under Christ following Him together. So when you think of church, the first thing that ought to come to mind is people. Is that the case for you? Because that's how God sees it. He sees it as a household with all the love and care and relationships that go with that. Next he says, which is the church of the living God. All throughout the Old Testament, God constantly contrasts Himself with dead idols. He makes fun of dead idols in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says, I'm the only living God. God is the only living God and He lives in His church. In fact, you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14? What ought to happen when an unbeliever walks in the church? 1 Corinthians 14.24, he says, If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. He's saying when unbelievers walk in, they ought to catch a sense that there's a living God in this bunch. He transforms their hearts, their lives, their speech, their worship, everything. There's something different in this body. Finally, he says it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. What's a pillar do? It holds a roof up high for all to see, right? And these people in Ephesus knew about that. There was a temple to the goddess Diana that had over a hundred columns or pillars. And it held up this marble roof. And many of these columns were donated by kings. And it held this roof high for everyone that came into the city to see. He's saying, that's what you all ought to be doing with the truth. Don't be hiding it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be watering it down to blend in with the world. Hold it high. Because the world needs that truth. Be a pillar. But he also says foundation, which can also be translated as buttress or bulwark, which has the idea of defending and and protecting the truth against attack. That's part of our role too. That lines up well with why he told Timothy, guard against these false teachers. Hold it high and defend it. Are we doing that? I hope so. This comes up in all sorts of places and not just on Sunday. I had an opportunity this week to do that memorial service and as I planned it, I found out from the man's daughter 
that many of the people at the service were going to be Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. So when she told me that, she also said, so keep it short and simple. And I heard, I heard what she was saying, but I also knew i got to be faithful to God's Word. So I prayed, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? And I thought about all the places we differ on the afterlife and things like that. And boy, how tempting it would be to be a point-by-point, go through the Word and talk about that. But what God kept bringing me back to is, hey, when Paul preached, he said, I preach Christ crucified. I don't rely on man's argumentation. I rely on the Spirit of God. And what God was bringing me to was one simple verse. John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And every time I thought about adding more, it's just like, no, just keep it straightforward. Trust in my spirit to do his work. And so I got there, and I was waiting in the lobby for things to start. Right in the lobby, it began. A couple came in and they started, you're not going to share this in this message, are you? You're not going to share this. They wanted to have a discussion right there in the lobby as all the people are coming in. And I just said, we'll see how the Lord leads. Why don't you all find a seat and make yourselves at home? And I was just praying, Lord, you know what you want to do here. You know what you want to do. And, and during the service, I shared that verse from John 11. After the service, that same couple from one of the two cults came up and they shook my hands and the, the lady, an elderly lady said, I'm mostly deaf and I couldn't hear anything in that whole service except one thing. You know what I heard? I wanted to thank you for sharing John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. She said that was the only thing she heard <laughs> in the whole message inside. I'm saying, thank you, Lord. Now please take that home and help her understand the fullness of who Christ is and your word and how he can save her. That was all she heard. <laughs> but we've got to hold that truth high. Sometimes it does mean going through a point-by-point -point discussion. Other times it means just simply presenting it, always trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his work. This all comes back to the core of the church, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, our closing verse, he says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Some translations say, great is the mystery of godliness. And Some people look at that and say, Paul's like standing up against the teachers of Artemis and Diana and Ephesus, because you remember back in Acts 19, there was a riot, and they were all yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And some people think Paul's going out of his way to say, no, great is the mystery of godliness. You want to hear something great? It's right here. And what we see when we look at these next lines is the structure tells us it's like some kind of ancient poem or ancient hymn. And so as we unpack it, which we will. I want to be careful not to lose the wonder and worship of it all. You guys know that's what poems and songs are for, to inspire worship and wonder, love and passion. He appeared in the flesh. Right away we know we're talking about Jesus, right? He appeared in the flesh, 
was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. You Star Wars fans know that the Death Star had a core, right? Right? And all the good guys had to do was get their ships in there and blow the core up. Because the core was central to everything. The core of our faith is hugely important. You start to mess with the core, you change everything. It quickly becomes something that it's not. We must guard the core. So, so what is the core that we see in this little poem? Some have said this little hymn is the heart of the book. Because when we realize who the head of the church is, Jesus Christ Himself, all of a sudden we start to care real deeply about how we conduct ourselves in His household, right? Because He's the King. As we close, I'd like you to bow your head. I'm just going to read this short hymn one more time. And I want to invite you, if you know Christ as your Savior, to worship the Savior of this hymn. Let the wonder and worship of this hymn soak into your soul. And if you're here this morning and you heard this good news about this Savior, but you've never met Him, I'd love to talk with you. It's as simple as repenting and trusting in what He's done. Here's the hymn. Worship in your heart with me. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory.